0: The elephant in the room is unearned advantage. The elephant in the room is the thing that we don't want to talk about. Okay. Which is that some of us have advantages because of who we are and where we come from. Chris likes to say it means you're not starting on first base, you're starting on third. Yeah, So yeah. All of us, no matter what culture, almost what nation, can sort of accept and acknowledge the principle that everyone can earn advantage, right? You can work hard, you get rewarded. Right. You form relationships, you get opportunities. Well, yes, everyone can earn advantages, but some of us have to work harder because of who we are and where we come from. And it's because of that unconscious bias, really—the thing that, that you and, and Chris have been talking about already—that way that we're naturally wired to feel safer and to feel more comfortable with people like us. That is the uh, sort of unchanging fact for most of us. Just like it is an unchanging fact that some of us have had some advantages more than others, and so. Our effort is to name that, to name Advantage and Unearned Advantage, and then to try to help people work with that idea, the discomfort that you've just mentioned. And then third, the thing that excites us the most, is to find each other so that we can grow more Advantage for all.
1: Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu. Business psychologist, coach, speaker and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organisational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades, with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organisations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Why Care. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. So I have two for one when it comes to brilliant minds in this conversation, speaking to Gloria Johnson Cusack and Chris Altizer. Gloria is a speaker, lecturer at Columbia University and a consultant providing strategic counsel to leadership teams and boards globally regarding governance, change, leadership, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's also served as a lobbyist for the charitable sector, been a board chair of National United Cerebral Palsy, and was a special assistant to the present in the White House Office of National Service. Chris has over 30 years in global human resources and currently coaches and consults in leadership and team performance with executives and boards. He's also a registered yoga teacher and practicing fifth degree black belt martial artist. You can see how their diverse backgrounds and perspectives of the world has come together beautifully to write their book, Growing the Elephant, Increasing Earned Advantage for All. In this episode, we discuss the often unhelpful use of the word privilege in DEI work and why Gloria and Chris have reframed this language to earned and unearned advantage. We talk about what is needed for systemic change when it comes to inclusion and belonging and how contemplative practices can support the discomfort experienced by people with unearned advantages. We also unpack the value of a growth advantage mindset. This is such a rich and powerful conversation. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Enjoy. I am absolutely thrilled that you, Chris, and you, Gloria, are joining me for Why Care. This is an incredible honor. Um, We both have the same publisher, and so I actually knew about your book before It hit the public domain because I was told about it by the wonderful Alison Jones. And I was very much waiting. I then put it in my Amazon wish list until I could get hold of a copy. And then I was delighted to see you on Jennifer Brown's Will to Change. And I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. And so I would love to welcome you. Thank you very much for joining me, Chris and Gloria. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Honor. (laughs) So... Initially, just to give everyone a sense of your background individually, and also how you both came to write this book, Growing the Elephant, Increasing Earned Advantage for All. So my background is as a leader and follower, literally
0: in every sector. Business, policy, advocacy, higher education, the nonprofit sector and it was in higher education while I was working at Florida International University, which is the fourth largest public university in the United States, serving more Hispanics than any university in the United States, that I had the pleasure of meeting Chris. We were both uh, working on the policy committee to try to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion at that university. And it was a very quick friendship and sort of mutual admiration society that emanated from that. Chris had already conceptualized the book. I was coming at the subject from, I would say, a decidedly sort of systems perspective, especially as a person who was a lobbyist for foundations and nonprofits. My perspective has been about creating systems change, policy change. Okay. And Chris's perspective for this book was, let's look at the role of the individual. And it was a magical opportunity to sort of dig deep into how we can strengthen the competencies and the mindsets of the people who are advocating for change and the people in power uh, who can help effectuate change at scale.
1: Wow. And I love that story of how two perspectives came together and you thought, actually, this is gold. Let's write a book. Wonderful. Chris, tell me a little bit more about your background.
2: I am a retired and recovering HR executive. So that's <laughs> by putting and a long career in large companies and senior roles. And that of, when I retired from that and moved down to South Florida, uh, began teaching at Florida International University as an adjunct in the business School of Business and had done some writing on diversity and inclusion in the context of mindfulness, which I'm a late comer to that whole world, a, a martial artist for 25 years, but the uh, really getting into mindfulness as a, as a discipline has been over the last seven years. And my ability to pay attention to what was happening in the world expanded with reducing my career scope. Like so many people who have all the unearned advantages that I do, I really began to associate, well, how am I fitting into all this activity in the world and paying attention to injustice, inequity, and what do I have, what do I think about it? And that caused me to decide, well, what do I have to say about it? And that began the the essence of the book. And then I was fortunate early on to meet Gloria and have this thought partner with very different lived experiences from my own. And yet shared values, which I think for me personally is kind of common sense. And most folks would say, oh yeah, you could, you can be different, but if you share values, you can get things done. That's easy to say. And then it's another to really discover it. That's what I've discovered working with Gloria. So that this idea of the elephant in the room, the one we don't want to talk about, especially if you look like me, because we don't, right. If you have unearned advantages or privileges as it's typically called unproductively, I might add. Okay. we can get into that.
1: Yeah, we will.
2: I believe, and Gloria and I have this shared vision that there's a way to talk about this, that is actually inclusive, that actually reaches people. But as opposed to the systemic institutional historical perspective, which are all very valid and all very real and all very powerful, I believe the system changed when people change and people change one at a time. So this approach, which quite candidly, some folks have, have received this as, you know, you're not nearly aggressive enough. Other folks have received this as, you're pushing me too hard. So I think we're in the right space.
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. What I loved particularly about your book is that you did hold the reader really gently through some really complex topics and actually even just the reframing of privilege to, and splitting it up. Because often the pushback I get is, you know, I can't help some of these things that I have, I'm now made to feel guilty for being born into the house I was born into, being born into the skin I'm in. And that's not where we're going with privilege. And yet the word itself is so weighted in the nuances of social class and difference. And it just has some negative connotations for people. So. I'd love for you to unpack that definition because Chris, you've already mentioned your own unearned advantages. So what do you mean by that? And what's the distinction between unearned and earned advantage? And I'm happy for either of you to answer that.
2: So we, one can tell when looking at me on a screen. So I'm I'm Caucasian, I am male. I seem to have a full range of, of physical ability. See, uh, there are things that we could see. I, I was Christian raised. I am heterosexual. I grew up with clean water and public schools. I'm extroverted. Not so my joke is if I was three inches taller, I'd have it all. <laughs> because here's the thing is that no matter how we want to deal with it, basic psychology tells us that each of these components brings advantage yeah. to any social and business is social interaction. And these are rooted in really fundamental human traits of survival. I like to be around people who are like me because it's safer that way. Right. Yeah. Ironically, that's, of course, we know that's not really true, but that's how we're wired. Eh. It took me a long time. Robert, who you've met in the book, who is Chris in a lot of ways, it gets to discover that over time, which is, as you said, I was born this way. And don't hate me because I have these things. Yeah. And yet Robert has to come to terms with having them, which he does not like. No. And Chris not like, Chris no. did not <laughs> like that at all.
1: So was that a journey for you then when, in going through that realization of your own unearned advantage, how uncomfortable was that? What did you have to process?
2: It comes in moments, the comfort and discomfort. So the idea of being uh, the advocate and the ally, oh, Chris is the advocate and the ally. And I was in positions where that mattered, to advocate for others, to be an ally for others to speak up. And I feel pretty good about that. Pat myself on the back, you know, hey, there's Chris, advocate and ally. And then not recognizing those critical moments when my own lack of awareness would diminish and disparage other people, right? not by intent. And this is where people that look like me really get challenged by this. They say, well, I didn't mean to, well, of course you didn't. Now, there are those who do, let's be clear, right? There are plenty of people in the world who would like to see subjugation and the rest of that. But most of the aggressions that we see in this world are the micro and they're unintentional. It doesn't mean they're not damaging and it doesn't mean they do lasting damage. So for me, it was the recognition that really began in 2005 and that story in the book to this very day. Because today I'll read it something in the news and go, well, you know, those people, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, there I go. There I go. Talking about those people being hypersensitive, those people being this. Um, catch myself, Right. So we're never done.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Gloria, I'm still interested in then what's earned advantage.
0: Yeah, so the elephant in the room, is unearned advantage. The elephant in the room is the thing that we don't want to talk about, okay. which is that some of us have advantages because of who we are and where we come from. Chris likes to say it means you're not starting on first base. You're starting on third. Yeah. So yeah. all of us, no matter what culture, almost what nation, can sort of accept and acknowledge the principle that everyone can earn advantage, right? You can work hard, you get rewarded, right? You form relationships, you get opportunities. Well, yes, everyone can earn advantages, but some of us have to work harder because of who we are and where we come from. And it's because of that Unconscious bias, really, the thing that, that you and, and Chris have been talking about already, that way that we're naturally wired to feel safer and to feel more comfortable with people like us, that is the uh, sort of unchanging fact for most of us, just like it is an unchanging fact that some of us have had some advantages more than others. And so our effort is to name that, to name advantage and unearned advantage. And then to try to help people work with that idea, the discomfort that you've just mentioned. Yeah. And then third, the thing that excites us the most is to find each other so that we can grow more advantage for all.
1: And we're going to definitely come on to that growing the the advantage for all. I'd really, really keep. Can I just go back to what you said about We can all earn advantage, but we're starting at different positions, so it's easier for some people to earn advantage than it is others, right? And in your book, there is a really helpful visual that looks at that relationship between unearned and earned advantage. So essentially, the more unearned advantage you have, the more likely it is that you're going to achieve that earned advantage. And for me, that visual nailed it in terms of busting the myth of meritocracy and seeing that distinction between the have and have not, the inequity in the system. So how do we help leaders sit with the discomfort that that brings, that acknowledgement that I have all of this unearned advantage and that potentially now it means that I might not have fully earned, as I see it, the position my successes in life. So I'm happy to sort of jump in and say that What you're talking about is being able to
0: recognize that it's our thing. (laughs) Yes. And what we try to encourage readers to do is to use the, the different tools and suggestions and approaches to set their intentions differently once they have done the personal work, the reflective part of just sort of understanding the experiences of other individuals and their lived experiences. So. For me, I didn't need to have that lovely graphic that's in the book to appreciate the sort of concept about unearned advantage and how it leads to more earned advantage. I show up as a woman of color, part African-American, part uh, indigenous Native American. It's the Halawat saponi tribe. I grew up with completely different lived experiences from those that are described by Chris, literally by virtue of how I woke up and the world that I came into. And so it's not a new notion to me that, well, it's not the same for everyone, that it's not a given that if you work hard, you get rewarded. My mom, who is Native American, and grew up in a very poor, rural, segregated United States in 1936. She certainly worked hard 15 hours a day in tobacco fields and was never able to have be a part of the cash economy because it was literally illegal for her to be able to take some of the actions that most people would when they were being exploited by greedy white farmers. And if her dad spoke up, there was fear of her finding him hanging from a tree, lynched. And that was commonplace. So no illusions about what unearned advantages or the issue about forming relationships. Well, the schools that she went to, one-room shacks in 1946, were taught by teachers who themselves had not graduated from high school using books with pages torn out that were literally thrown in the trash by white students up the road. So what kinds of relationships could she have created where she would be given more opportunities when the people there who were you know, given authority to lead and help guide them were not resourced themselves. So it is that lived experience that then sort of causes me to come into this conversation, certainly from a different place that than Chris or Robert does. And yet we find each other because of these shared values that we have, because my life experience has also been that with the assets of that community and that family, we were able to move to a different place. And so that's one of the, the values that animates, I think, both of us, that we want to use the advantages that we've been able to earn. Chris wants to use the advantages that that he, that he were unearned to try to bring more people along and, and help them see themselves, no matter where they are, to sort of meet them where they are, not shame or blame, but say, we think there's a better way. And by not using that privilege word, which just takes up a whole bunch of oxygen out of the room and causes us to waste a whole lot of time bringing people back to the conversation, we think this new framing allows us to just get faster to the what now.
1: Yeah.
2: Just add to that a bit, Nadia, you took the sense from the book, our belief is that people are their own better teachers. So the DEI space has been full of lectures and data and stories that should compel belief and action that haven't. We wonder why the needle hasn't moved. The really driving force behind this is that We have to allow folks to be their own better teachers. And the way to do that is to give them better questions rather than better arguments and better case studies and more reasons. We have to have better questions and then the opportunity in the space to contemplate those and then the grace, candidly, for people to make mistakes.
1: Yeah. Yes, of course. Because
2: that's one of the things that we see in the media now is that if anyone, you make the smallest mistake in the space and you are... Cancelled. You're put on leave, yes, in the most recent example, right?
0: Literally, put on leave from your job where you've been trying to be inclusive and create inclusive opportunities. Yeah. It's a headline here in the United States, yeah, yes, yesterday. <laughs>
1: it's constantly here as well. And it does put people off, and of course, it enhances the discomfort because what I hear from you, Gloria, and thank you so much for sharing such a personal story of your heritage and you know your family background, which I found incredibly powerful. And it resonated as well with my own family background coming from Mauritius. But it's so obvious to certain groups of people, that distinction between unearned advantage and, and how it can clearly relate to where you get to in life and your earned advantage. And there are some groups of people who it's masked. They just don't see it because they've never experienced it. And so what I heard from you then, Chris, was there is a way of managing and supporting people as they enter this thought and space around unearned versus earned advantage to hold them and allow them to experiment in the sense of try something, get it wrong for it to be okay. But as long as in the mindset of learning and trying, is that right?
2: It is. And the great irony, Nadia, is that People with under advantage need to be resourced. Oh, wow. You're kidding, right? Yes. For all of those, and including myself, who have not accustomed to being tested or asked hard questions, we need to give them a path, which is uh, and there's a reaction to that. It's like, well, the last thing I need to do is, is resource people that look like Chris.
1: Because they've had loads of resource in the past. Let's face had it. Nothing right?
2: Resource. And candidly, and I've gotten this feedback from old friends, people said, you know, Chris, if anyone had, would have said that Chris Altizer was going to co-author a DEI book, eyes would have rolled. And it's not that I was some kind of raging racist or anything like that, but just the, my own background doesn't lend itself yes. to being aware, to recognizing And it wasn't really until the practice of my own mindfulness practice and training and meditation that helped me work with. So that's how I've grown to this point. So I don't look at folks with, you know, Dudley in our book as a high school educated white guy supervisor who's like, you know what, I'm not buying any of this stuff. And I can't look at Dudley and go, you know, uh, shame on you. No, we have to meet Dudley where he Mm -hmm. is Yeah. if we hope for him to take a step beyond where he is. Yes. Because the idea of, as as Gloria says, the the blame and shame game, not only has it worked, it's resulting in laws that are being passed here in the United States around what you can and can't talk about in school and at work. And that's alarming, but it's also an opportunity.
1: Yes.
0: And I think we would add that we also have to meet the Robert, the white guy who's in power who also has not spent the time asking the tough questions. If we want to achieve change, systemic change at scale that is transformative, we've got to meet that person there too. So one of the centering questions, Chris said, you know, we try to get people to ask better questions and let them be their own best teachers and give them tools to work through those issues both privately and if they choose in a group is to ask, might my lived experiences be different for others unlike me? Yeah. Because so many of us who mean to be good people, who are not rascals with nefarious intentions, as are some, right? Enter this conversation, enter problem-solving, innovation, you know, challenges around inclusive environments, work environments, communities, and all, from the vantage point of, well, you know, I'm a good person, and I, I believe in the golden rule, and so I'm trying to make that true for everyone else. Without doing a little bit more of the reflection about, well, might those lived experiences you have be different for others, and therefore some of the assumptions that you make, and then some of the solutions that you come up with, be off center. Yeah, right. So there are all all kinds of opportunities that we try to offer in this book to help people do the reflective work. And I really want to emphasize this. When you're a psychologist, you've worked in improving human capital and performance and innovation, what, more than 20 years. Yes. So I know I'm preaching to the converter. This is more to the people, <laughs> you know, listening. The work that the three of us are doing is meant to allow people to have the room to do the personal work in a really straightforward and simplistic way. And then they can decide how they want to show up, whatever the seats they sit. Yeah.
1: I'm interested then just connecting what you've just said to the practice of mindfulness and Chris has brought in mindfulness already, but because you've mentioned mindfulness practice throughout your whole book, offering exercises and you keep continuously go back to it, you know, at the end of each section, how does mindfulness practice support your reader?
2: I'm going to offer a refinement and substitute the word contemplative for mindfulness here. Okay. Okay. Because in the contemplative practices world, there's all kinds of dimensions of mindfulness being one of those, which is your present moment awareness without judgment. And then the practices, so you're right, there's an underpinning of that where for each of the exercise, we encourage people to take a seat to take a breath. You know the very first exercise very first thing Robert has to do is take a breath, right exactly, because we know the the physiological psychological benefit of that as a practice. That's probably more from my yoga teaching experience than mindfulness. but But the contemplative approach, including present moment awareness, which is an underpinning to the different exercises. Because what I think is really true is folks will recognize and then they will retreat or they will recognize and they will uh, reject. So when it comes to recognizing unearned advantage, it's overwhelming. What's the examples in the world of disparity and injustice and so the reactions to very complicated issues become tweets and bumper stickers. So and that's because we don't want to be present with what's uncomfortable. So the underpinning of mindfulness in this broader array of contemplative approaches is how can folks be comfortable with what is true? And I think what I hope you found from the book is so valuable uh, in this partnership with Gloria is that this book is not just for people who look like me which is what the value of the co-authorship and the co-thought leadership of this is whoever you are, wherever you're from, whether you have a lot lot of under advantage or very little, there's a contemplative opportunity and perhaps a mindfulness practice that may come along with it to help you be with what's uncomfortable because it is. And that's really the, the mindfulness piece is that these things are true. You may not like them. You don't like them because you're being penalized for it or you're being rewarded for it. But to be present with it, which is really the mindfulness point, being present with what's true in the moment with less reaction, so that you can deal with it. Someone asked me early on to said, "Oh, this whole mindfulness thing is that you're just going to sit in the face of injustice and do nothing?" Uh, no, no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no not that's quite.
1: definitely not what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> Terribly, that's all. So the idea of Being comfortable with what's real, is not the same thing as accepting it?
1: No. That's brought me very nicely, thank you, Chris, onto the concept in your book around headwinds and tailwinds, because only just last week I was facilitating a workshop and we got to the point where essentially I'd landed the point around the myth of meritocracy. I'd landed the point around unearned advantage and and earned advantage. And I said, I turned to them all and said, well, is that fair? And they sort of looked at me and said, fairly collectively, well, no, but it's just the way it is, right? And it took me a moment just to kind of think, and these were fairly, they were sort of like emerging leaders. And I thought, my goodness, so such a young group of people, just happily accepting. It's not fair, I agree with you, but it's just the way it is, what can we do? So... This concept of headwinds and tailwinds was really helpful for me. And Maybe you can just explain to the listeners what you mean. Headwinds that
0: were going against opposition, the kind of opposition that you've talked about. And there's sort of tailwinds that can sort of push us further in the direction that we want to go. And so we try to lift up in this book ways of people to sort of shift their mindsets from having that sort of fixed mindset of thinking, this is the way it is, it's yeah. the way it's always going to be, people won't grow, people won't change, it's how always been for centuries, to maybe there's a way for us to ask these tough questions, to believe with optimism and confidence and historical fact that people can learn and grow with the right tools. And then with that mindset, go further and say, if we have better managed diverse workforces and teams that are doing things. We will have more optimal outcomes. Make the business case because it's hard to argue that. And ironically, many of the business leaders globally are leapfrogging to this realization even faster than some of us in civil society, both the philanthropic sector or the nonprofit sector, because they have a profit motive, right? They have demographics, customer bases, and workforces that are causing them to deal with these headwinds and tailwinds that we try to describe.
1: So is it that you mean through that growth advantage mindset, which you talk about in the book, that you can create tailwinds, you can create the ability for everyone to advance, and those people who have had headwinds holding them back is it that the growth advantage mindset allows the tailwinds to develop?
2: Great question, a way to frame it. So, the, the introduction of growth mindset is in the working with part, right? So, we've recognized it. Now, how are we working with earned and unearned, mostly unearned advantage? And growth mindset, which goes back to Carol Dweck's.
1: Love Carol Dweck's work.
2: Yeah, hopefully everybody's listening to this knows that. If you don't, go listen. But the idea here is, it really gets back to Gloria's point around outcomes, right? What are the outcomes that we're talking about? Because the important thing to recognize with headwinds and tailwinds is they are forces of nature. So are we going to get rid of them? No, because it really goes back to the whole notion of unearned advantages. I can't change some of these things. The fact that I'm a, a white male with all blah, 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 the rest of that, these are tailwinds that I have. Now, here's the thing, and I find this really important to mention for the Double e's and many other people in the world, and it's the basis of the kind of opposition that we're getting now from DEI's. We'll say, well, just because you're white male doesn't mean you're guaranteed success. You're right. It does not. And we have to acknowledge that, right? And that's the challenge with some of the dialogue in the DEI space today, is that we'll talk collectively about whiteness as the problem. Uh-huh. That's a very big collective term, and... It, it, it's not working, right? It may rally a point of view, but it's not working. So, right. whenever we're overly descriptive, which is kind of the nature, then we'll get the pushback that we get. Yeah. So, recognizing that just because you have a tailwind doesn't mean you will get there faster, but again, you have greater opportunity okay. right, to get there faster. And that's, I think, the importance of intentions that Alvin does in the book is by intention setting, we have to balance the what and the why. So in the DEI space today, we have a whole lot of why. We have a whole lot of moral imperative, which of course, and I could not agree more. But if we try to make that case to business leaders, that to say in your workplace training program, you're going to change the societal construct of discrimination, it's not going to work. It hasn't worked. We've been at it for 20 years. And not only is it our work, but it's working against us. So we can't think of it that way. And I get a lot of flack for this. (laughs) for for people who are in the space, they're like, if you're not talking about the societal, historical, institutional barriers to oppression, then you are against us. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I hear where you're coming from, but, and that's part of the, part of the baggage that comes with being someone who looks like me who's in the space at all.
0: That point that Chris makes does relate to that earlier question we asked Nadia about, you know, contemplative practices and Chris's point that it's not just for the white people or whoever's in power in some other part of the world based on caste class and all of the things that we know. We're starting at first base, as opposed to third base, to use the baseball analogy, who also need to do these contemplative practices to make sure that we are our best selves. Right. There are several characters in the book, including Yvonne, who is a woman person of color. Has some similarities to me, although i I can tell you I can relate to all four of the characters who is exhausted yes because of the life that we have to live of having to manage all of the aspects of, of being other, but it's also exhausting if you are in the struggle yes for change, whether it's a, a formal part of our occupations or what we do in our civic lives or not and I say often, you know, Chris talks about ways that he gets in trouble. I try to get in as much trouble as I can by speaking to people who fit my profile to say, we have to do this personal work too so that we show up in a way that calls people in instead of calling them out and to make sure that we do the kind of contemplative work that also creates a space for people to make mistakes as we are learning and trying to have the tough conversations.
1: And that is no small matter. No, of course, because there's so many years, decades and centuries, if you go back in time, we're carrying all of that with us. So we don't just enter the world without any history. There's the family history. You've already spoken about yours, Gloria. So of course that affects us, it affects how we perceive the world, how we interact with the world. And of course, emotionally, what we hold as well. And so what I took from what you've just said, which I completely understand. And it resonates with me is that we could be holding anger. We could be holding frustration. We could be holding sadness and hurt and whole host of other emotions around the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, and our sense of belonging in the world. And actually, that's not always helpful to what we're trying to create. Is that right? That's exactly right. We get in our own way and it's not,
0: again, fair that extra weight has to be carried, but that's the game we're in. (laughs) Yeah. It's a world we're in.
1: So what specifically can leaders do to create that earned advantage for all? Because that's something that you mentioned at the very beginning. And I'd really like to get to this, a sense of, If there are leaders out there listening to this, what can they do? Aside from the work on themselves, aside from sitting with that discomfort, working through some of the things that are coming up for them, listening and taking account of other people's lived experiences. I get that, but is there anything else that you'd like to see people doing?
0: So, you know, the running joke, my family is that there's one part of me that's like Dr. Spock in Star Trek, you know, super cerebral analytical. And then there's that part of me that's like, you know, Forrest Gump in the movie, All Soft and Tender. So I kind of feel like we've been talking about, I've been Forrest Gump so far, now I'm going to be Dr. Spock, (laughs) which is to do the, have the conversation about what we propose in this book, what we call it, Dimensions of Power. Uh And it's really an analytic framework that leaders can use, we have found to be extremely useful to specifically call out the different ways that, that power can be shifted and shared okay. in order for us to have more diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And the shorthand point of it is there's actually, uh, that's the inverted pyramid that we see in the book uh, about dimensions of power. The main point of it is to say that at the very least, at the bottom of that pyramid, at the tip of the, of the triangle, most of us who are trying to advance DEI work towards achieving representation. It's like the least mm-hmm. thing. It's like, make sure you have the diversity of bodies, human beings in the room, representation, right. in the team, in the organization, with the stakeholders, whatever. And we're happy to have that diversity. And most of us aren't even doing a great job at that when it comes to how we organize ourselves. And then we talk about a higher dimension where you get more efficacy, more transformation. That's the middle part, there are only three tiers. The middle part of that pyramid, the higher dimension, has to do with increasing the diversity of perspectives. So you may have diversity of people, but does that necessarily mean that you have a diversity of perspectives yeah. that help us achieve better problem solving and innovation? There's a choice to be made about that. We like to note that even if there's not a diversity of bodies, we can work hard to have a diversity of perspectives while we're working on bringing in more bodies, right? We don't have to wait and say, well, we don't have enough diversity of people, you know, with all of the different identities to move up that pyramid, Right. The main point, though, is that the highest dimension of diversity, equity, and inclusion involves a sharing of power yeah. in three ways. It is is our messaging articulating our intention for there to be more inclusion and all of those other things, diversity of, in the perspectives of decision making. Is our messaging saying that? Because most of us in organizations, especially complex organizations, take our cue about what matters based on what gets articulated. What do we say is important, right? And people aren't stupid. They notice if you're not mentioning this as an imperative, it's saying something, right? The silence is conspicuous. And then we think about uh, the second aspect of that high dimension of power, which is people. Are we aligning people and 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 provide and creating accountability so that people are responsible for coming up with different outcomes, different performance outcomes for the organization, different performance measures for individuals? And then of course it's money. Right. Are we aligning financial resources to support those people to have change? So a lot of the work basically, if you're gonna sort of put this in a hashtag, it's hashtag align money, message, and people across the organization if you really want to have change. And what that's not is naming one person, God bless us, with DEI in their title and say, (laughs) this is our leader, right, who's going to help lead the change that we want to see in our organizations. That's really window dressing at best. You know, I have all kinds of other words, the rascals we call them you know, are intentionally creating uh, an environment where there's polarization, and at best, many of them would be happy for there just to be the window dressing where, you know, we've got representation or we've got one person named who's going to be doing it, and then they can, you know, claim victory and say there's no more time or, or energy to be resourced to it. So leaders, we hope, are going to be thinking about that and seeing themselves in this framework and saying, if I'm just working on getting a diversity of people, the representation, I'm probably
1: not moving towards real transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for describing that. I found that particular model so valuable to think more broadly than the D in diversity, because that's exactly what you're saying, right? The representation, we're just focusing on diversity, but actually where's the collaboration across difference, which is that second tier around getting different perspectives in. And then what are the leaders' responsibilities and and that top tier that you mentioned? And I'm so pleased that you found a very polite, t- I thought Rascals, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know what you were going to come out with at one point, but you landed with Rascals. I'm very grateful. We know it when we see it. <laughs> I, love it. <laughs> I love it. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation so quickly. I have so many more questions for you, but the final one is one that I'm asking all my guests because as you know, I'm writing a book which is called Beyond Discomfort. And so I'm intrigued about your own discomfort that you've had to manage in yourself or address as an inclusive leader to date. And now, Chris, you've already spoken personally about some of the discomfort that you felt. So if you have another example, I'd love to hear and of course from you, Gloria as well.
2: So yes, here's another ironic thought periodically I find myself because when you write a book like this, it takes over your life and (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So know yeah. that, my friend. It, t- it takes over your life. It takes over everything you think about. It takes over what people ask you. And I find myself periodically getting tired of it. Because when this book happened, it happened. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to write a DEI book. That's not the way this came. That's another story. It's a 2 beer conversation, I like to say, about how this thing really sprang forth. But a lot of things got put on hold for it. And then I find myself pining to want to go back to those and then getting tired of, of the space because it's so hard to be in. And then I remind myself, let's see, Chris, if it's hard for you to be in this space, what's it like for Gloria to be in this space and everybody else who doesn't have all the unearned advantages that I have. So I trip myself back into recommitment to conversation. And it's ironic, right? Because again, why does Chris need to be resourced? He's got all these resources, but I do. And I'd say that that's the word i give to everybody who looks like me. You will get tired of it. There's DEI exhaustion for all those who are trying to drive the work that don't look like us. And then there's us who are like, oh my God, can we be done? I want to be done. I'd like, I'd like to be done now, please. Right? Um, No, we're not. And we have to be present. That's what I would cheer.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. And it resonates with me as well. You know, I don't think any DEI practitioner is working in the space that doesn't feel that at some point. This is hard and it's really intense and it can be very emotionally and cognitively draining often. So, yeah, thank you, Chris.
0: Gloria. Well, before I describe the discomfort, the optimist in me just has to say, and the pragmatist also has to say, despite all of this discussion about how hard it is, To anyone who's listening, it's worth it. Yes. Because the community is growing and deepening. And just like you, Nadia, have been so diligent about creating community among us. Those tribes, I like to call them, exist all over the world. And it's joyful. It is. That's so true. And even though it takes over your life, Nadia, in the writing of your book, it took over ours. It is a growth experience that is like on steroids (laughs) and your life is forever changed. Really. It's, it's, it's just wonderful work to do. Nothing will be wasted. And so, uh, that's encouragement there. The discomfort I would say is related to what Chris, um, just mentioned. And I continue to push through it as recently as last week. Okay. The discomfort comes with having to bear witness on a regular basis because I know it's what works. It's uncomfortable to tell my story or to share with specificity the kinds of experiences that I have or the people I love have or you know, people in the disabilities community you know, where I've worked for many years has because I'm an empathic person. And so when I'm telling the story, I experience a lot of the, the pain and sadness that, that what we're talking about. And I do it because as Chris said earlier, it works. When I'm in a room, usually speaking truth to power with very influential people, I am not giving them statistics and trends analysis and quantitative data. They've got it. And it's a case of woeful ignorance. If that open source information, has not compelled them to move. So that's not my audience what i know though is that i have to push with that discomfort because i know that my i voice has power no one can debate me when i share my experience yes and i do it in a spirit of love not Hmm. condemnation and so it's discomfort and it's worth it and every time when i'm done i pull to myself and i meditate and i pray and i thank my higher power for giving me the Hmm. privilege to offer that and then I get lifted all over again and then we keep going and I I think that is what my wish would be for all of us that we come up with our own formula for dealing with the discomfort and the hunch that Chris
1: and I have is that a lot of that has to do with contemplation. This is so beautiful what both of you have shared. Thank you so much for joining me, for sharing more of the insights that are in your book. It's a fabulous book. If anyone's listening and hasn't got a copy, I highly encourage you to do so. Just for those people who want to get hold of you on socials, where are the best places?
2: We're both on LinkedIn under our names. The Growing the Elephant has its own page. Growing the Elephant is on LinkedIn and we're on Facebook.
0: That's the main way you do it. So growingtheelephant.com and you can get to the book website that's got all of the other links that uh, Chris just mentioned. And Nadia, I don't want us to leave without the congratulating you on the <laughs> amazing endeavor a fourth season, all that stuff. I mean, it, it brings us joy just knowing that you're in the world doing what you do. So Yes.
1: Thank you. Somebody make sure you record that. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. Well, Listen, it's been just a delight to have you on the show to speak to you about all of the things within your book. Everything that uh, we've spoken about is going to be on the show notes page. If you go to com under podcasts, you'll find all of that, including the full transcript. Thank you both so much. And maybe there'll be a, a second episode that we still need to cover so much more, so How about you join me another time? It would be a delight.
2: Absolutely. (laughs)
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Be well. That concludes episode 34 of Why Care. I loved the different personal stories that Chris and Gloria offered throughout. For Chris, it was about how he navigated the discomfort of realizing his unearned advantages. And for Gloria, it was about how her family heritage meant she had to work that much harder to earn advantage. It perfectly illustrated their analogy of headwinds and tailwinds do let gloria chris and i know what you thought of today's show you can find me on linkedin insta and twitter with the handle at nadia nagamutu as always i really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family huge thanks to maro at kenji productions for editing this podcast and glory Oribori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.